0: Good to have you in the house, <laughs> Nathan. Had to get that one in there. Yeah, it's all good. I'm Tara. For anyone that's new, I don't think I see any brand new faces this morning. Uh, but it's good to have you here. This last week that I know can get a little bit crazy for everybody just before school goes back, and uh, everyone's. Uh, we don't. Not. It's not just teachers um, that we have here, but a number of um, of staff who. Uh, and d- various school roles so um, those who are chaplains uh, those who are support staff uh, for altar one um, and so do if you um, you know, think of things to pray for this week um, pray for our team who are prepping to come back for school this week um, and all of those who are uh, who will be doing that um, in their various different places I think we've got chaplains in uh, so Scotty, who's uh, back at um, at school as a chaplain, uh, Nathan, who uh, works as uh, a counsellor for um, young people in Altar One, Cat uh, and uh, um, Terry, who are teaching. Um, so there's, uh, and I know there are others actually. I just can't think of so so many of um, so many of our congregation in roles where, like Duncan said, might not traditionally be seen as the work of the church but know that wherever you're at you do the work of the church when we are the church it's not what we put uh, a name to or or the programs that we run we we do those to lead by example and to invite people into opportunities to serve but that's not the limitation of the work of the church it extends to uh, wherever you're located in your families in your workplaces in your neighborhoods um, that is the work of the church. And you represent Jesus by loving people well, by uh, doing your work to the best of your ability. Uh, we lead uh, by doing things uh, from, uh, from a perspective of loving Jesus and wanting to be more like him in whatever field we're in. And, and I think so we're privileged to have so many uh, in our congregation that serve in those ways and, and love people well. Uh, do pray for our students, particularly the altar one students, that they would come back. Um, we know uh, after doing this for a little over 10 years that often over the Christmas break they will be coming back with a whole lot of um, uh, a whole lot of stuff that maybe we had been hoping they were on the way out of. You know, by the time we get to the end of the school year, things happen in families over Christmas time and when you're working with students who have already uh, got that disadvantage and the difficulty that they're facing, um, that coming back to school even can be a a time of anxiety uh, to begin to face those things again, seeing the counsellors again, connecting with their teachers and chaplains and that sort of thing. So so pray for them. I'm going to be speaking out of a verse that I don't think I've ever preached on. And this is probably one of those things where someone will tell me after that I did this like a year ago and I forgot, but that's all right. Um, I have uh, an interesting um, memory function that doesn't always function exactly. So, uh, But as, as far as I can remember, I think I've avoided this verse only because it is one that you hear so often. If you've ever been to a wedding, you'll probably know the verse roughly. Um, if you, um, you know, if you've ever picked up a bookmark or, you know, those sort of things like, uh, from a Christian shop, you'll have seen some of the quotes, um, and it's coming up to Valentine's day and I'm sure it'll be thrown around a few times on Facebook. Um, but I want to speak to you today out of first Corinthians 13. Um, and I'm going to be sharing the verse that, uh, that is usually read at weddings and I'm not Uh, I think that there is so much wisdom in how it is used in a wedding context but I also know that it's not the full picture Um, it's not just about relationships between a husband and wife it's actually just about human relationships it's about community and so it is a verse for all of us Um, and it's also a reminder of what we're working towards and so as I share that this morning as we head into the beginning of this year and as we start to put some uh, some words and some framework um, and some vision uh, you know kind of in writing and in things that we can uh, we can share together as a church as we start to talk about those things um, I feel like this is a word for the moment this is a word that actually um should inform our uh, one of our core values which uh, I would name as compassion um, or we've used the word compassion and I know that that's a bit of a limited word that doesn't cover kind of the depth of what I'm trying to get at with that but um, really around how we do things as a church. We talk about commission. As a core value, like we just talked about how every person's call is and every person's function and what they're doing, not necessarily in the church but outside of it, is valued and and is the work of the church. Um, We talk about communion, that relational connection, that connection with God and with uh, the Christian community. And the last one we talk about is compassion, and the reason why, even though compassion forms part of the way that we do the work that we do, so our commission, and the reason, and, and it forms part of the way that we connect with each other. Um, you know, it's one of the things that um, actually makes it possible for us to have uh, that connection with each other, that communion in God's, uh, you know, God's family. The reason why we talk about it separately is because it's what sets us apart. There's something about the way that this love works that makes us different from the rest of the world. And that's not to say that we're better, it's to say that our job is to invite the whole world into that. So if you, uh, if you want to turn with me or open up your... Electronic. Let's we'll start from verse 1. It says, If I speak in tongues of mortals and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I have. I am nothing. And if I give away all of my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it it does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends or love never fails. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. And as for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know only in part, then I will know fully even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope and love abide, these three and the greatest of these is love. Lord, we pray as we open up your word, God, we would hear your heart. God, that we would be drawn into your call, that we would be drawn into your presence into being remade more like you, God, that we would be called into, God, that this wouldn't be a word that condemns, but one that convicts, God, one that leads us to grow, one that leads us to be encouraged in you. I pray, Lord, as we open this up, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would see your face. Lord, that we would get a little more clarity today in Jesus name. Amen. Before I share a few thoughts out of this verse, I want um, first, and if you're in a written version or if you uh, if you have it on your phone and you're in the um, in the chapter, you can have a look at the verse that's just before and just after this. Because it's interesting that we often read this passage as I've just read it. That's how it's usually quoted. That's how you find it on the bookmark. It's even how you find it divided in your Bible. But do you know that those titles and numbers weren't there when it was originally written? So the verse immediately before it and immediately after it are not separated by a chapter heading in Paul's mind as he writes it. So verse 31 of chapter 12, it says, but strive for greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way or a better way still, depending on what version you have. What is he talking about? This is where knowing where a passage is placed, can give you so much more insight into what it's actually there for. Because it's just after the passage in chapter 12 that's about the body of Christ and how we're supposed to work together, all those functions, all those different commissions, all those different roles that we play in the church and in the world as the church, all the ways we come together in unity, and love one another. And it talks about the gifts that are in the church, the gifts we have that, you know, might bring us uh, or might be the things we're familiar with on a Sunday morning, to pray and prophesy over one another, to worship and lead and exhort, uh, gifts of leadership, gifts uh, of hospitality, all those things that... Um, that we can share with one another. But this verse comes in the context of that description to tell us that no matter what the gift is, no matter what your gift is, no matter what role you play, there's still a greater gift. This one. And so when we read this It's not a condemnation of any of those things that Paul speaks of. It's not saying that to prophesy or to have faith is a bad thing or even that you know that, um, that all of those things are not as important as we thought. But actually that all of those things have to be done with the foundation being the one thing that we're told is the most important, which is love. You know, I think one of the reasons I might like to avoid this passage is because this, more than any of the chapters around justice and equity, more than any of the chapters around purity and uh, and strife, you know, more than any of the chapters around, um, you know, serving and worshipping God, this one sounds almost unfathomable to live out to live up to this standard, to love like this. It's a challenging passage to read. And that's why the last few chapters of this verse, even though it's not necessarily as poetic and pretty, and it might not go as well on the bookmark, and sometimes they don't even include those last little bits, why these last few chapters are so important to this understanding to opening up this and living in this reality because it places us in the picture one of uh it's kind of like you get your your first reading of this and you look at it in terms of relationships and sometimes we put it in that wedding context and then there's the people who like Um, first thing they want to say then is like, yeah, but this isn't really, and this was my go-to, you know, it's not really even about human relationships, it's about who God is. And you can read it and it's been written that like, uh, that your love is this, love is, you know, love is patient, love is kind, you can substitute God is patient, God is kind. Absolutely, 100%. This is a picture of who God is, but it doesn't stop there. The last few chapters of this passage invite us into the picture and show us how. See, it'd be more accurate if you read it in the Greek to say, Love shows kindness. But it's more than shows because it's love embodies kindness. It's more than that. It's that love in its entirety. So it's the reason why they use the word is is because it's like when we say God is love, it's like everything that is love is found in God. And so these are active statements, not passive statements. And that's kind of hard. Maybe the English teachers in the room might have a little bit more um, of a go-to on, um, on undoing the Greek in this but it's a statement that actually is an instruction so it's descriptive but it's also not just something that we can look to as a picture on the wall but it's actually something that we're called to walk in it's an instruction so love is patient it's saying that if we have love like we're instructed to do as we come together as the body of Christ and love one another, then that love will show patience. That love will show kindness. That the love that we step into has to be walking towards a way that isn't envious or boastful or proud. Active, not just descriptive. And when he says at the very beginning, I will show you a more excellent way, he could have said, I will show you a more excellent picture of what God is like, but he didn't. He could have said, I will show you a more excellent description of the ultimate love that God has, but he didn't. He said, this is a way for us to live. I will show you a still more excellent way. And the last thing um, that I think if we were to put this, if I was to put this on the ultimate bookmark, would be to go to the last statement, uh, or not the last statement, but the next passage, the next statement after the end of that verse. The instruction that finishes, pursue love. Goes on to encourage, to you know, strive for all the spiritual gifts and all of those things, which actually, ultimately, when our foundation is love, look like love. To prophesy and encourage one another looks like love when we pursue love first. To speak in tongues and seek the heart of God in prayer and intercession. Well, when our foundation is love, that looks like love. But pursue love. Imagine if everything we did, we started with the intention of pursuing love. And not love that feels good or not love as we, you know, might love to do something or love eating ice cream or whatever it is, but love that looks like this passage, that is patient, that is kind. We're invited into actually an action that we can pursue. And when you pursue something, it means you don't attain it straight away. So this is not just an instruction, it's an encouragement. It means when you pursue something means you go after it you haven't quite got it but you still go after it again go after it again go after it again do we wake up daily and revisit whether we're pursuing love do we question whether we're pursuing love when we encounter a situation and ask ourselves how we should respond or do we ask are we right do we ask you know we usually ask if i think i'm right on this or do do we ask you know i think it'll work out is this going to work out for do we ask ourselves if we're pursuing love and what would that mean for the choices that we make so the word from chapter 14 is that you don't have to attain it all to still pursue it that is our that is our challenge as a church to name compassion as a core value and to still have decisions to make on a daily basis where we will have to ask what does it look like to pursue love and to get it wrong sometimes And not only that, to face the consequences of whether we've got it wrong. To ask for forgiveness is often to pursue love, to repent, to confess, it's to pursue love, it's to recognize that we might not have got it right. But the grace of God invites us to pursue again invites us to try again, to get up again, to pursue love again. The interesting thing about the way that this is phrased, faith, hope and love, the greatest of these being love, is that Paul uses that combination of words quite often in what he writes. In Thessalonians, he writes faith, love and hope. He doesn't necessarily say that, or he doesn't say that hope is the greatest of these things. So we know that he means it when he says love is the greatest of these. But his use of love being in the foreground of this conversation is intentional just like it is in Thessalonians where he's writing to a church that have encountered extreme circumstances where many of their family members have been persecuted and died where they've they're facing this situation of grief that he speaks into in the greetings and so when he speaks about faith, love, and hope, it's because that church needed to hear about hope. Just like I have to kind of smile to myself when three different worship leaders on three consecutive weeks put together a set of songs about the love of God never failing us. Maybe, church, that's something that we needed to hear because these things are intentional. And just like this message to the Corinthian church, which we know was experiencing division and competitiveness and uh, disagreements and all kinds of things like that. And so Paul intentionally writes here, bringing love to the forefront of the conversation. Because where there is division... The only answer is this kind of love, it's love that you have to pursue. The only answer is to seek God, is to seek His way and to get up again and seek Him again even when we get it wrong. In reading through this passage, we come down to verse twelve. Well, actually, from verse eight it starts to talk about things to come. Well, the uh, talks about love never ending. Prophecies they'll come to an end. Tongues, you know, and uh, I, I, I never quite used to understand those things, but if a prophecy speaks into something that is to be fulfilled, this is actually a promise. This is looking into the promise of what God has for us, that one day we won't need to speak prophetically into what's wrong in the world and how God wants to make it right, because all things will be made right. That one day we will not need to like it need intercession and, and praying in tongues and, and all of those things that um, help us to hear the voice of God and help us to be united in hearing one another because we will already hear and be united. But love never fails. And so to live in a way that begins to embody love is actually to live in a way that begins to make his kingdom a reality. It's to live into that which we're called to. It's to live a prophetic life when we can walk in this. And this, the incredible thing when you put the whole passage together is it's an instruction and it's an encouragement that if you haven't made it, that you can still get up and try again. And it's a vision for why we do it. Is when it talks about things coming to maturity, things being fulfilled, and that we only see dimly now. Have you ever looked in a mirror and the light is not good, and you can't really see what's going on? We've got um, a house that's partially renovated, and um, and Tash like I don't know what they were thinking in like the 80s when this house was built but they put these like down lights it was like before down lights were a thing but this was it was like a uh, a display home I think on the street when that area was first built and so all the lights are these like 80s level fancy um, where the bulb is set in the ceiling which if you know anything about the way light <laughs> is like, you get this spotlight, cause like down lights are made in a way that they disperse the light, like they've got the reflective and it sort of spreads the light out. This was like, it looked good, I'm sure, compared to like those big old like bulky fittings, but um, it really gives you zero light in the room whatsoever. And so when uh, you try to use the mirror in Tasha's room, then you, you could not see anything. And so we would try and like put all the lamps on and put that light on, try open up the window and like get some of the street light, like um, because there's a street light outside, pretty much better than the light on the ceiling. Um, and so the mirror was real, really dull, really dully lit. Um, and it only occurred to me when I was looking through the scripture, I looked at it, I was like, I didn't actually have reflective glass when this was written. So whatever the mirror was made of, it certainly wasn't what we would be looking into as a mirror right now. Um, so when this talks about something being a dim vision, it's not even to that level of like there's poor light in the room, you know, and we can't really see what's going on. This is probably like a reflective metallic surface of some sort, like, and you, have you ever like been in in the bathrooms at like the beach where they don't put glass in because it gets graffitied and stuff and tried to use one of those mirrors like you're not seeing very much at all and the comparison that's being made here is that what we can see at this point is only that kind of reflection of what's to come but our call is to live into and make that clearer where to be reflections of the love of God, where to be a witness to that which we know because we've experienced. When we see God, when we are encountering Him in His presence, and we can reflect that in a way that looks like Jesus, and people see who God is, we make that vision a little bit clearer in the world. His kingdom come, and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the greatest encouragement of all that's found in this passage, and i ask the band to come and join me. It's found when it says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we only know in part, but then... I will know fully, even as I have been fully known." The encouragement here is that wherever you stand and however dim that reflection looks to you now, however dim you feel like the reflection you've given to this point has been, or whether you're just standing there trying to figure out what's in front of you for the first time, you have been fully known by God, that we have been fully known by God. And that word known is not in the kind of like I know what you did, but it's known in that it's, it's kind of an intimate uh, a way that the word know is used in the Bible to know uh, someone is the way like a husband and a wife know each other. It's like you've been known by God in a way that he knows everything but still loves, still cares, still reaches out, still lifts you up again. You have been known and loved by God in a way that he will still do that again tomorrow and the next day and the next day because as much as we're invited to pursue love, we have first been pursued by love. My story, however complex my introduction to faith was and confused sometimes, is a story where I can show you 10 different ways that God spoke into my circumstance through people, through invitations, through events, through communities of faith, through acts of generosity, through a children's pastor who was my aunt who sent things from New Zealand to Australia to send a message to me that God loved me, to the music teacher who taught me the verses of Christmas carols that I sang as worship songs in the darkest times of my childhood, out the window believing that there was a God that looked something like those Christmas carols told me. To the church that decided to invite a whole bunch of messy skater kids to come into their Sunday service and put up with us long enough for me to hear the gospel. To the ones who drove me home week after week, even though I could never get it together enough to organize a lift before I got to church. To the youth kids who served in our ministry that taught me so much about who Jesus was even when I was supposed to be their youth pastor. The ones that never gave up inviting me when I stopped coming. The ones who never gave up coming to church. Even when we walked through the hardest season of our life. because love pursued us first. I've seen the love of God. And so I'll get up and pursue God and pursue love. And the invitation is, would you pursue this morning the same way you've been pursued? Knowing that sometimes we'll get it wrong, but God's grace is there. Knowing that sometimes growing can be uncomfortable, but grace finds us there anyway. I'm going to take some time to come around the table this morning, but before we do that, I want to invite you To make a decision to pursue love. To be pursued by love. To invite the love of God into your life in a new way, whether it be the first time you've acknowledged it consciously or whether it be the millionth time you've asked God to pick you up again. Will you invite him in this morning, recognizing that we've failed and fallen short, that we've not loved the way that he first loved us, that we've not loved others the way that he loved us. We thank you for your love that pursued us not only to the ends of the earth but from heaven to earth. That your love was made real in ways that we can never comprehend, so that we might be able to see who you are, even if in little glimpses. God, we pray that as hearts are open this morning, we would see your face. that those who are struggling to feel love this morning would feel your love that pursues them relentlessly. We ask for your forgiveness, God, for every time that we've fallen short, for every time that we haven't pursued love for every time we've shut you out. Would you meet us here and show us your way? Lead us in a way that looks like love. in a way that begins to embody all of the other gifts and the other things that we talk about, God, but is always found in love? Would you remind us to pursue love? And remind us that we're always pursued by love. Amen. I find it incredible that it's this chapter that leads us into the one that talks about communion. It's this chapter that leads into the one that talks about how we should come in a way around the table that recognizes that every person should be able to to be present at the table in a way that no one goes without, no one is excluded, no one is left out. He's out of this living into the love that we're invited into. It's the practice or the, the ability to be able to be the church that he's calling us to be. Not sanctuary church, but the wider church, one where we can all recognise that we come to, into God's presence alongside people who are different, who think different, who sound different, who speak different languages, I mean that literally and non-literally. We come around the table as kind of like a first and a final step. Because as we come, we begin the process. We say, yes, I'll be part of this thing, this uh, this community that is your church, knowing that I've been forgiven so I can be a forgiver and ask for forgiveness, but we also come to a table that represents how things should be, where things are headed, how God intends for his world to look where everyone Is welcome, everyone is equal, everyone has access, and everyone is known and loved. That's why we say the words we do before we share communion together, even though actually because. Some of you now know it off by heart. Because our prayer is that one day when all the voices in your head are saying so loudly that you're not welcome, you'll remember the words even if you can't hear them coming from the front that say you're invited to this table. That someone who comes in who's never understood that they're welcome would recognize that they're welcome here too. So this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have a little, you who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed in following Jesus. And you who have just decided to follow Jesus today, come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now, if necessary, go and be a forgiver and run back because it is the Lord who invites us. It is God's will that those who desire Christ would encounter him here. So well, come. We lost our MC who's probably helping out in Kids Church. <laughs> but that's okay. You can lead us in the benediction. Church We come as we are, but we are sent out not the same. Sanctuary. He speaks over us a new name to bless and rebuild this city. So we go. Broadcast good news for the poor. Let the blind see, set free the oppressed. Live jubilee. Let it be. In his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.